podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Well, folks, welcome to the show about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Today, we conclude our special series on the 737 MAX. Although a general aviation podcast, we really think this is an important topic for all aviators. And we all want to learn valuable lessons from this. Joining me today is Ben Molman and Justin Ash. But before we begin, A quick word from our sponsor. Take it away, Larry. Do you want to pursue a career in aviation as a pilot, air traffic controller, mechanic, or dispatcher? Or do you just want to earn that commercial or instrument rating, but you need help paying for it? The Aerospace Scholarships Guide at AviationCareersPodcast.com has over $50 million in available scholarships. Many of these go unused because people don't apply for them. For just $10, you'll receive a full-year subscription to the guide, which is updated monthly. Every scholarship is personally verified to make sure it's accurate and still available. More information is at AviationCareersPodcast.com. Again, that scholarships guide, you can go to aviationcareerspodcast.com, maybe get a free scholarships guide. We have close to almost $100 million in scholarships. Use that coupon code PAYITFORWARD, all one word. You might get a free scholarships guide. You may even get a free 737 type rating. We have those plus a Airbus type rating. But I think apropos is the 737 type rating for this, uh, this podcast here. Now entering cruise flight. Well, again, joining me today is uh, Justin Ash and Ben Bowman. Hey, guys, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's great to be back. Thank you. So we have uh, both a uh, 190 instructor, uh, uh, a simulator instructor and captain, and Justin Ash, and also a 737 captain uh, who works for a major airline also. And then I am an Airbus guy, and A320 is what I fly, and also somebody who's very much into artificial intelligence, and that's where I kind of got my start in my career. So we're gonna, we have these great different perspectives we're going to bring to this whole conversation on the 737 MAX, certain ac- outcomes, actions and what we've learned and what we can do together. Uh, But I think, Ben, we're going to ask you to do just a quick overview. I know we're going to tell people, go back, listen to the different episodes. The 737 MAX, quick context, uh, why are we talking about it? And then we'll go forward. Yeah, and uh, and I'll start out with saying definitely go back and uh, listen to those other episodes. There's a lot of information in there. Um, And, uh, but, you know, basically uh, we've, we've, Tried to talk from the beginning of, uh, you know, why was the MAX designed? Uh, what changes were implemented into there uh, or into the MAX? And uh, then we started discussing uh, an in-depth discussion on uh, two crashes that happened uh, with the 737 MAX, uh, the subsequent grounding of it and uh, why those happened, what the FAA and the global communicate, uh, sorry, aviation community as, as a whole is doing about it. Uh, and then, uh, how we fix the problem. And now we're at, where do we go from here? 
Yeah, that was a great summary, Ben. I appreciate that. So where do we go from here? Uh, there's a lot of different things involved, both the airplane and the people. Uh, so what do you say? Why don't we start with training? You want to start there and talk a little bit about training? I also want to, before we begin, when you're thinking about this, and we're talking about this from, if you're listening right now, think about what you can glean from this information for your training and moving, and for your flying in general moving forward. I think there's a lot to be gleaned from all the all the topics that we've talked about. So anyway, let's start uh, with the training. And uh, I'll, you know, uh, uh, Justin, I know you're very much involved with training, and both from the airline and also from the general aviation perspective. I think in a couple of the last episodes, you really have talked a lot about the importance of the primary training, the the initial training in general aviation. Why is that so important? Well, it's the law of primacy, right? So what you learn first is what you tend to carry with you. And that's, you know, when I'm training, I spend a decent amount of time actually now training new CFIs and double I's. I just recently did a double I. And, um, you know, what I try to impress upon them is what you teach your students is what they're going to take with them. And so, for instance, kind of in the last episode, Ben pointed out that Sometimes nowadays, private pilots are trying to be instrument pilots with all the technology they have on there, and they're maybe not looking outside as much as they should be. So for a CFI, that's important. And then for a double I, it's, you know, when you're teaching instrument, just as an example, it's important that, yes, that technology is great, but we also need to understand how the basic instrumentation works so that we can see where the flaws are. And that, that kind of piggybacks to the MCAS system you know, um, on a much larger scale, but understanding how that system worked could have helped those pilots troubleshoot those problems. So not just knowing that you have something, but understanding how it works. It's what I tell guys when they push the button on the foreflight, right? And it spits out a weight and balance. That's great. But do you know where it came from? Do you know what a datum line is? Do you know what a center of gravity is? Do you know why it got that answer? And, And that's important, I think. Justin, I love how you said systems because it seems like in general, in training, we've kind of gotten away from systems, and uh, and I think we need to come back to our airplane and and be a little more in touch. and And by the way, before we we continue, just to let you know, this a lot of what we're talking about here is both uh, data we've empirically have, but also things that we've gleaned from our experiences. And a lot of this is also opinion by us, and and. By no means is it the opinion of, of who we work for, et cetera, but this is where we learn and this is how we grow as a pilot group. And, and it truly does take a village uh, to learn about aviation safety and about increasing the population of pilots and also increasing the safety of pilots. Uh, so I just want to kind of make that point. And this is going to be a lot of fun because a lot of this, the, the opinions are coming from our years of experience here uh, flying. But uh, going back to what I was just saying about the systems, uh, Justin, so uh, I'd love to hear your, you know, just because you're involved a lot in training, uh, you know, have we stepped away from the systems of the aircraft? I think we have in, in certain respects. Um, I think that sometimes that old school FAA kind of foundation is still there. Um, they'll still talk about on check rides, you know, this is how your instruments work. You know, the diaphragm expands and contracts and things of that nature. Or they'll talk about the hydraulics or, uh, systems if there are there or the brakes and things of that nature. But we tend to deviate from that pretty quickly. You know, we have, as you move through your career, you actually talk less about systems in my experience than we used to. 
as you move up and it's still becoming an issue of how much do you, it still is an issue of how much do you talk about it? Because I can tell you with the new aircraft coming online, they are actually pushing to talk less about systems than they are more. And it's part of that comes from the aircraft manufacturers and developers and, and they're telling companies and they're telling people that are doing training, listen, we put these computers in here, they're going to work. You don't need to worry about it. And that's where my concern comes in because that's kind of what happened with the MCAS system, right? Boeing said this system works. It's going to fix the problem essentially. You know, Ben can highlight a little more on that, but that was my takeaway from it. Don't worry about it. It'll work like the pitch trim system works in there now. It'll fix, you know, it'll do its job. And we saw that it didn't do that, but you're still getting manufacturers. And I think that it's just a different culture. It's a different mind frame. You being a computer guy can maybe highlight this, but computer people I've talked to, they very much stand behind the capabilities of the computers and believe that they're always going to work, you know, and that they're going to work as intended. Well, you know, and I want to make a quick point about um, what you were talking about with systems. You know, you know, we've we've all been in this industry long enough where we've gone from the checklists where, or I'm sorry, the check rides where, you know, they ask you well, how many rivets are on the wing, uh, which is a completely useless piece of information. But, uh, you know, that's what checklists used to be. You had to know how many stator veins there were and how many rivets there were and, you know, exactly what voltage and amperage and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, in the last 10 years, especially, there's been kind of a push in the opposite direction to, hey, I don't really need to know why this light came on because all I'm going to do about it is I'm going to go to the quick reference handbook or emergency checklist of some sort, and I'm going to look up that light and then I'm going to do what the book tells me. And so if I'm just following the checklist, what do I really need to know about said system uh, other than just a very basic understanding? And I think, um, you know, we'll talk uh, more about the direction we're heading and, and what manufacturers and airlines and public generally wants to do, uh, or what they're discussing. But I think in, in this specific scenario, I think it's interesting to, to show basically, you know, we've dumbed it down to the point where maybe we've gone a little bit too far along that spectrum of, do I need to know how many rivets there are to, do I need to know that there are just two wings on the airplane? I don't disagree with that. I think that systems are important and I think we've deviated from that. However, to go back to Carl's original question, my experience in training and what I've kind of seen is I think the deviation from actually flying the airplane and a willingness to turn off the automation is a bigger problem. Because to use an example in a jet, if the TAT probe or TAP probe or, um, were to come off the airplane or the equivalent of a pitot tube on a small airplane comes off, I can't reach out there and fix it, right? But what I can do is fly pitch and power when I'm getting bad information. And so to me, hand flying, yes, systems are important, but we do have a lot of manuals on board and things as we spoke about in the last episode that will help us work through that stuff. But if I don't turn the automation off and fly the airplane, I can't read the book on how to fix the problem. That's why there's two people, right? One person should be flying, one person reads the book. And 
So yes, to me, systems are important, but hand flying is just, if we can fly the airplane without the automation and then write manuals on how to fix it when it breaks, that to me is the harmonious relationship between the technology and the pilot. Well, and I think that's the the bush that we're all beating around here is that it, it's a balance. I mean, you you, you want to be basic enough that you can fly the airplane because that's really the first thing you need to do. Uh, but you do at least need somewhere on the spectrum of some systems knowledge in order to um, you know, know why something is happening or to not necessarily believe what happens if there are two lights that come on at the same time. Which one do you do? You have to have some systems knowledge in order to prioritize that. But wasn't that part of the Airbus? Um, remind me, you guys, I've read so many reports, the Airbus that almost went down in Europe. In that case, they uh, knew their systems well enough. Or the, I, I forget if it was a captain of the FO that that had the systems knowledge where he knew which computers to. <laughs> we're talking about computers and relying on them. Which computers to turn off to regain control. Uh, and you know when you hear about it, I have to say every time I hear about it in class, uh, people say, "Wow, that was that was some great knowledge. That was some really good knowledge." Which kind of goes to my point that I was going to make. Maybe we, I, I know we use the term "dumbed down," and maybe I, I, as far as systems knowledge, maybe we are, have become too hyper focused, and maybe even myopic on certain items that we need to train. But because of this person's knowledge. Uh, and his ability to think clearly during this and calmly said, hey, wait a minute. I know. I have an idea. Let's turn this and this off. And no longer will I, the computer be in control. I'll be in control of the aircraft. So I think that's kind of what you're alluding to, Justin, is, is that incident. And yes, we still have the training for that unreliable airspeed. But how did we get to that training? We got there not through an accident, but through the actions of a pilot who prevented an accident. I think that's that's great testament to having the systems knowledge. I think we can't have enough systems knowledge, but, but I think uh, Ben's comment on what's the balance of that, I personally, because uh, the way I feel, I try to take a system every year or six months and do a deep dive into it. That's from me personally. But what where do where do we actually go with the training? That's the real question. Yeah, and I think systems are important, um, and that was exactly what I was trying to hit on. Is it's you know, but we didn't talk about that incident very much in the public, you know, because that pilot was able to remedy that problem and get that airplane on the ground safely, and that is part of where some of my issues come in with the way we talk about this and look at it is when. A pilot does a great job, but then we go back and we look at these accidents and it's, we tend to dissect them when the, to me, the answer is right there in front of us. It's a combination of flying the airplane and understanding the systems and look what the result can be if we do that. And I think that's to answer your question where the training is. I think there needs to be a bigger focus on hand flying the airplane and understanding the systems. Heck, even hand flying the airplane while the other pilot is dissecting an issue and being able to work together in that CRM environment. You know, Justin, though, the, one of the things that I still struggle with today is answering my question to myself, and maybe I could get some help with this, is where do we go? I mean, where do we start with the training and say, okay, you've been trained to be a pilot on this aircraft, but we also want you to continue forward with your training where do we draw that line when we to realize that the person has had 
the requisite training and is competent to fly the plane, but also needs to learn more about it. And uh, boy, it, it's it, I, I still to this day struggle with that. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe I should have put this into my training curriculum. Uh, so so I'd love to hear your comments on that. I think it's a difficult balance. Um, ideally, I think that training, I'm an advocate of training more often and maybe not in such large bulk. Okay. So right now the airlines and understandably so don't like to pull in their crews more than they have to because it costs money. But the more often you're in the training department, even if it's only for a day, you just, you get back into that stuff, right? When we come back to training, we tend the night before to read up on our you know, systems and do things like that that gets us back in the books. So I think that's one step we could take is just bringing people back more often and maybe even for a less period of time um, just so they have that interface. And uh, because it's all recency, right? It's all recency of experience and all of that is what you're going to tend to lean on. And then I think also having training that's interactive and conducive to what the pilot does on a day-to-day basis. And I think we're doing better with that now with AQP than we have with some of our previous training. I think AQP can do a good job of that and really engaging the pilots for something that they find value in. You know, the old school way of training was so, sometimes you lost buy-in because it was just these crazy emergencies that you would have that really, as a pilot, you were like, is all of this going to happen? I mean, are all my hydraulics engines and everything going to all fail at the same time? (laughs) Probably not, right? Well, I think think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of disparagement going on about uh, using the iPad to train uh, in a lot of circumstances. And, you know, people associate their iPad with watching Netflix and YouTube and uh, playing games and stuff like that. But it is actually, uh, in my experience, has been an invaluable, invaluable training tool uh, because it allows some interaction. Um, and it also has allowed us to go away from the uh, the old days of sitting in a dark room with somebody in front of a uh, slide projector or a PowerPoint, uh, depending on your generation and listening to some person drone on for an hour and then you get your 10 minute mandated break and then drone on for an hour. Uh, and you're just trying to get your minimum time in before you, uh, go out. I I think that the iPad has actually been a really valuable training tool. I think it's a wonderful training tool, just like you said. I mean, but again, it it opens this whole door to there's so many more things that you can actually learn uh, using that iPad. But it, it but it all depends on the individual too. I mean, you can do that. Like I think uh, Ben, you were saying this before. Hopefully, you're not just you know training or or studying the night before and cramming for the for the test or the training. You're you're actually going through this over a period of time, which goes back to Justin what you were saying with AQP. We are constantly doing stuff. I look at how many quizzes I take throughout the the year and i'm taking one at least one every month uh with the airlines what keeps my knowledge of the systems in in mind but then there's the other side there's the flying side too and can that be pushed to the ipad a little bit tougher a few things maybe some procedures can be uh just like on the on the computer uh but but in general it still is good to bring them in just like justin was saying to, to actually do some flying uh and and get out there 
the other night, the great thing about the iPad too is, you know, a lot of people, uh, even all the way uh, in the GA level, uh, are using their iPads for uh, for manuals uh, as an EFB. And you know, one of the ways that I keep myself in the books, uh, GA and airline, is anytime I have a question about anything, or anytime anybody asks me a question about anything, I look it up because it forces me to get back in the book. It forces me to check to see if there are any changes and. It has never been easier with search function and et cetera. You can look, you know, what is this requirement? You type in uh, PSI and it shows you every time that PSI is in the, uh, in the manual. And, uh, you know, so it, it can be a great tool uh, for that. And that's another way that I try to keep myself in the books. I never take something that I think I know for granted. Yeah, I think the iPad is a valuable tool and I think we'll continue to utilize it. Um, and I think moving forward, there's a lot of things that you could do with it, but it's just exposure. Exposure is the biggest thing. See that with private pilots, instrument pilots, private pilots who are instrument rated and they don't fly instruments and they come back for an IPC instrument proficiency check every six months and you see how weak their skills are. But they do six approaches. Versus if they would just do one approach a month, they would be a lot more proficient than doing six every six months. And I just see a huge advantage there, but I don't know how you implement that on an airline level because it's it's not cost efficient either. It's not cost efficient for the GA pilot either uh, at, at certain point. You know, just going out there doing all these approaches, a lot of, a lot of guys are like, hey, listen, I just want to bang this out because, hey, I'm paying for this by the hour, right? I mean, yeah. so from my perspective too. By the minute. Or by the minute, right? Yeah, by the minute. Uh, so I think there's, those are some good points as far as, you know, getting out there and doing more and more training. But you can get yourself involved by, we talked about, you know, chair flying, that type of thing, and hand flying. Uh, and I kind of want to go back to that point about hand flying before we talk about, like, the government, the FA, et cetera. You, you talked about hand flying and training, et cetera. But I think, too, we are reticent to turn the – uh, not just at the airline level, but on the GA level, turn the automation off. And I'll be honest with you, I get pushback sometimes. And what I've done, because I'm a first officer, I turn to the cat and say, hey, do you mind if I turn everything off and just fly? And if they're reticent at all, I leave it on. I leave all the automation on. So I know what captains I fly with who will let me hand fly the planes and which ones won't. And I think it comes to this. It becomes a liability uh, for them and because they're responsible for that flight. They're, they want to make sure that we use all the automation we can to keep us safe. And, or not just safe, but also legal. Legal is the big one. And and I get it. I mean, you, you guys are captains. I mean, you, you must every so often struggle with that. If you're going to let the person hand fly, you have to become more engaged, don't you? You do. You do. You have to be more engaged. You have to be, um, you know, it requires more out of you as the, to use the term pilot monitoring, right? Um, because now not only do you in the radios and the navigation, but you're also assisting them in other things. However, it, it is important. And I mean, I'll, I'll take that a step further. And it's not only important to do it in the airplane you fly at the airline level. I heavily advocate for airline pilots to get back into general aviation. Even if you don't get back into it heavily, go get current again in a 172 or whatever it is and just go fly a little bit with something where you can turn everything off 
and you can just go fly. You would be surprised when you get back into your jet or whatever it is that you're flying professionally, how much you kind of look at it and go, oh, that's right. You know, because you went back to just looking out the window and it kind of, it almost, GA almost brings you back to your roots and you start to remember a lot of that stuff that you used to do. Um, and so I think that's good. I mean, heck, you know, if you can convince yourself to go and just rent an airplane and just do a few approaches with an instructor and, or just go out and do basic maneuvers, slow flight, steep turns, stalls, that type of stuff, but do it outside, cover up all the instrumentation inside. And people don't, you know, I shouldn't say don't believe me, but they sometimes look at me like really flying 172. What's that going to do for me in my 737? Well, all it does is get you back outside. So that hopefully when you sit in the 737, you look out the window a little more, or maybe you're less reliant on the automation, or maybe it starts to remind you of how things work. I don't know. I have seen a correlation though, that the guys that fly a lot of GA, they tend to be more willing to turn off the automation. They tend to be more willing to kind of just fly. Whereas the guys that haven't touched GA in 20 or 25 years, they tend to be less willing to do that. And I think it's because when you fly GA, you don't necessarily have those options, especially if you fly some of my airplanes where I just take everything out. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it, it's funny. I was flying with uh, a fairly fresh uh, private pilot a little while ago. Uh, and we were, uh, on, you know, basically an hour out from an approach. And it was looking like we were going to have to do an ILS pretty close to minimums. Um and, you know, he, he turned to me and asked me, you know, how often do you do this at the airlines? And uh, I was like, well, you know, occasionally, you know, a, an actual down to minimums approach. Um, and uh, he said, well, what do you, you know, you know, you're going to be hand flying this. Like, how do you feel about that? And I said, well, you know, I generally don't hand fly an ILS down to minimums at the airlines. Uh you know, uh, what I like to say is use the appropriate level of automation. Uh, you know, when it's clear in a million, absolutely. I'm going to use, uh, I'm going to turn everything off and I'll fly my visual or fly my ILS backed up, uh, you know, uh, visual approach. And I'll absolutely do that all day long and it's fun. But when it really gets down to, hey, this is, you know, it's a, a real approach down to minimums, et cetera, et cetera. I want to use every tool that I have available to me. Um, and so going down to 200 feet or 50 feet or uh, 600 feet on a uh, non-precision or whatever is not the time to be practicing your VOR approach. Now, if you have to, to be able to do it uh, or to practice your hand flying, if you have to do it, then you have to do it. And that's why you practice when conditions are more appropriate to practicing without automation. I love the term you used, appropriate level of automation. And, and to back that up, I do that all the time. I'll fly down to you know a couple hundred feet in VFR conditions. Uh, when it's IFR, hard IFR, I usually always leave the autopilot on. It, because it also helps in a crew environment, it helps the other person. Uh, because now they're, you know, their focus is on many other things instead of just making sure they're managing the communications and also the FMS or what other systems, but also ma making sure you're doing the right thing. So they don't have to, their scan doesn't have to be quite as quick. In other words, you got the automation on. Uh, but it really, I think, is important for us to continuing to do that. 
and not just doing it uh, as far as flying VFR and doing the approaches down to minimums, doing them to a standard that you set and say, I'm not going to get off by more than 50 feet of my altitude, et cetera. Really push yourself. And when it does come to the, to the time when you do need to go back to no automation, you're able to fly that approach. And I think that's really good. So I love that term, appropriate level of automation. I'm glad you kind of put that in there. Um, as far as other things that we can do, as far as flying is concerned and, and from the airline, the GA, and the, we talked about systems, the, the government involvement in in, uh, in flying. I think one of the things that I really enjoy, and I'll probably be the person that's kind of on the sidelines on this one, is I love having the, the FAA guys involved in in some type of the training. And I love when they come in the jump seat because we, we get to talk about things and about uh, instances and things from their past that we can learn from. And I know it's uncomfortable for a lot of people uh, to have the FAA with you, but I really enjoy it. I would love to see more involvement on maybe not so much, you know, uh, a, you know, a, a level of, of actually looking at you from a perspective of you're being checked, but more so input. Uh, and I, that's why I think having them there and more involved in a more friendly manner, I think would be, a little bit better somehow, but I know there's going to be a lot of pushback from that. I, I'd love to hear what you guys think on that. You know, should we get the FA more involved? Uh, can we have them along more so for rides, et cetera? Well, I think one of the interesting things that you brought up is having, having your own personal standard, uh, whether it be GA or uh, in the airlines or corporate or, you know, professional flying. Um, you know, I never, never worry about having the FAA on a jump seat or check airman or, or whatever, or, or going into a check ride. Um, because I fly, I, or at least I try, you know, nobody flies a hundred percent standard, but I try to fly as standard as I can. And as long as you do that every day, when the FAA comes on or the company check airman or a DPE or whatever, you're just doing what you've done every day. And it takes that little bit out, um, that little bit of nervousness out uh, and so I, I, I don't know if I would go as far as saying I welcome the FAA on board, but I certainly don't mind it when they're when they're along. I figure I'd be the outlier in that comment. Uh, so <laughs> I thought I was pretty diplomatic. Yeah, you were. You know, I, and I, I love the people that I work with at the FAA, and they're, they're such wonderful people, and I, uh, I've learned so much from them, and that's one of the reasons I say that because they're, they're normally not what we think they are, but I get it. You can't really let your guard down because you're, you're always afraid you make that one little mistake and boom, there goes your certificate, uh, that type of thing. It's normally not that case, but yeah, yeah, it's a little more relaxed when they're not there. So I get it. I do. Um, but uh, other things that we can talk about too a little bit to, and we're in this series, we're trying to wrap this up with many of our opinions and also we'd love to hear yours, by the way. Uh, so, you know, definitely contact us and let us know what you feel about this analysis. But one of the pieces that we haven't talked about too much, and I'll just kind of talk a little bit about is the artificial intelligence part of uh, replacing uh, people in the cockpit and the automation in the systems uh, is how we can talk about that there. I really don't think we're going to get to that point for a long time. And this is kind of my background. My training was artificial intelligence and linguistics and uh, language recognition, that type of thing. And, and one thing that we have found is even to this day, we can't replace the person. Can we, you know, translate things? Yes. Uh, but uh, we still haven't been able to 
actually replace people. And a good example is, you know, how long things take to replace a person from a regulatory perspective. And that would be, uh, you know, fuel injection is a good example of that. You know, look how long it took to get fuel injection into small airplanes, that type of thing. Uh, but anyway, moving on from the artificial intelligence and, and replacing people, should you do this, uh, this flying thing either as a career or as a hobby? Uh, I think we still have a lot of legs here. I don't think we're ever going to be able to get rid of people. And I look at it from the perspective of, you know, who's going to be responsible. And I think uh, not just, or Ben, you had mentioned liability. You know, I think that's part of it too, is the liability thing. I don't think, I think we'll always need to have a captain of the ship, won't we? Well, yeah, I think, I think we will. And, you know, you said something really interesting about sensors. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a forum geek. Uh, I lurk on a lot of online forums that talk about aviation. And there was a, a recent discussion about the Airbus uh, that just did its uh, totally pilotless airplane from essentially gate to gate. And, uh, you know, some people pushed back on that that said that you can't replace the pilot because, uh, you know, exactly what you were talking about, multiple uh, multiple failure scenarios and uh, multiple input scenarios. And the response always seemed to be like, oh, well, we can program for that or we can add a sensor for this. But the problem is what you were talking about is when you program something, you're now the liable person. And when you add a sensor, well, what happens? You add a thousand sensors or a hundred thousand sensors on the airplane to, to, to sense every minor minute detail that could be happening. Well, what happens when one of those sensors fails? like an AOA vein on an MCAS system. And, uh, you know, at, at what point who becomes liable for that? Um, there's not, a, there's not a whole lot of error correction, uh, in computers and there's not a lot of, uh, in, uh, artificial intelligence either. And, you know, that's why you have the pilot on board. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot is, 99% or 98% of accidents have something to do with pilot error. So wouldn't we want to cut out the pilot? Well, it's a misleading number because of course we don't see the hundreds and hundreds of minor mechanical failures that people deal with every single day uh, that don't get the news. We talked about uh, the Airbus incident uh, with unreliable airspeed a couple of years ago that received zero media attention. You know, again, at the end of the day, this, all really just boils down to liability. Uh, you have somebody who's liable for the airplane. Every captain, first officer, pilot in command, flight instructor, whatever. Anytime you step on that airplane, you realize the responsibility that you hold uh, for the people and the property uh, on board. Um, and that question becomes a lot murkier when uh, really the only people you have working are the the programmers and the mechanics basically. And I think that's a good point. I've always advocated for more transparency on what actually happens. I've had two that I can remember off the top of my head and there may be a third one in there if you let me think long enough, but I know of two cause they were pretty significant items that happened to me at the airline level, the, Everybody flying around Delta airline level, right? 121 airplanes. And both of those incidents went completely undocumented from a perspective of the public knowing anything about them. One of them was extremely significant. And we were able to still land at our destination because of where it took place. And so the passengers literally deplaned without any knowledge of what happened. And 
those are not in those statistics. I think if we actually looked at that and we looked at how many things went wrong on a day-to-day basis on an airliner that the pilots actually fixed or flew through, uh, then those numbers would come down significantly. And I think people would actually look at it and go, uh, yeah, there's no way you're getting rid of the pilot because 95% of all things that go wrong are fixed by the pilot. You know, there's just no data for that, though. I mean, look at the MCAS system. I've heard, and I don't know for sure, maybe you can answer, Ben, but I heard there was MCAS incidents, even the one preceding line or 610, that never made the news, but they had the same issues, but the pilots fixed it. Yeah, there were, um, and, and, and certainly similar incidents as well. Um, and there were issues before Lion Air, uh, after Lion Air, but the ones, of course, that uh, we hear about are the, the accidents, uh, not necessarily the ones where somebody was able to step in and fix it. Just like, you know, even after listening to four podcasts, I bet not a whole lot of people can tell me the flight number of the flight before Lion Air 610. That's a very good point. And one of the things, though, that I struggle with is, you know, how do you let the public know that? How do you let people know that? It's like, oh, man, I'm glad we, we fixed that one. You get off the airplane and you're you're shaking up like your engine. You know, I was talking to somebody recently who had an engine, the core meltdown, uh, had an uncontained failure on a vein, and just nobody said a word. But I tell you what, it took a while for those pilots to, to regain their composure. And the people just kind of walked off the airplane, like not much happened. Oh, yeah, I heard you had to turn the engine off. Oh, you know, thanks. I guess we'll go get another airplane. And and in the meantime, the pilots are like, man, that was that was pretty rough. And, you know, we're at a hot air airplane, heavy airplane, hot airport, made it back in, you know, had a hydraulic failure because of it also. And, uh, you know, those are the things you don't hear about in the news because all it gets promoted as as an inconvenience to a passenger. But sometimes that's good. I mean, that's that's what again. How do we how do we voice that? How do we how do we communicate that to the general public, not the pilot population, but the general public? I mean, I yeah, I you don't definitely know. have to balance how you uh, phrase your uh, cabin announcements for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we've had to turn off the engine, and we're going to be landing shortly. <laughs> it's sorry for the inconvenience, you know that type of thing. As opposed, to, oh my God, the engine just blew up. You know, there's there's many different ways to actually to bring that across. And uh, but, well, but and then, two manufacturers want us releasing that, and airlines want us releasing that because if a manufacturer, if we released all the things, I mean, I can remember airlines I've flown at where they. I mean, you guys have read it, right? They get a new airplane online, right? New aircraft type. And the first 24 to 36 months, that airplane spends more time broken than it does actually working until they work out the kinks. I mean, the general public has no knowledge of that, though. Yeah, and I, I don't necessarily know that there is a good way of disseminating that knowledge. Um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, certification process, Um you know, with the government, uh, FAA, airline manufacturers, investors, uh, all of these people coming in together. And, you know, they do have a lot of access to incident reports, uh, to FAA reports, et cetera, et cetera, that maybe the general public doesn't uh, see. And that's where you do have to be engaged and pay attention. Hey, who is the director of the FAA? Who, you know, what kind of oversight do they have? Because ultimately, I don't necessarily want to see how the sausage is made, but I do want to make sure that it's done in a healthy and safe uh, form. And I think as we move forward, uh, 
there's a reason that a lot of these certification elements take forever. And, you know, Carl likes to use the, uh, the fuel injection scenario. I like to use a CPDLC, which is uh, basically a fancy texting system uh, that the airplane can have. And I mean, it has been, it's relatively new to the airlines, but it has been in development for over 30 years. And it, we're still working out the kinks on it because we have competent, hardworking, dedicated people in the government and at the airlines and the manufacturers uh, and worldwide governments, I should say, uh, who are working on these issues. Uh, they are our elected or you know designated by our elected res- uh, representatives. Uh, and it's a big reason to, to, to be involved in uh, politics one way or another because that's how you make sure that some of the uncomfortable but reality or realistic details actually uh, do get addressed. Yeah, I think that's well said. And uh, I'm glad you brought up the CPDLC, by the way, just to to preface, we're going to have on Aviation Careers podcast, the person who did the first ever total CPDLC flight from pushback to you know, climb, landing, et cetera, uh, on the podcast. So check that out in the future. It's really interesting uh, how you talked about that because CPDLC has been around for a long time. But going back to the politics, yeah, it's important who represents you in in many of these government agencies. And sometimes we have control, sometimes we don't, but we do have control when we do vote and we get more involved. Uh, but but one of the things I want to go back to, and then we need to, to close up, is the fact that I think the public does realize, many of them, that the pilot is a very important part of this equation because of the responsibility they have and the ability to, to think and think like a pilot and be an aviator. And, and sometimes these things happen uh, very, they happen rarely, but they have a huge impact. And a great example is, you know, the miracle on the Hudson, uh, what happened out in Sioux City, Iowa, and places where we've seen the skills of the pilot and the decision making actually prevent something from being getting worse uh, and or having a very positive outcome. So it's Almost self-fulfilling, but we don't want to just rely on those type of instances because we don't want those happening very often, do we? Because that's also bad for for publicity, that's for sure, uh, within our our realm of aviation, because we all want more people to fly. Well, and, and and there's been, and I'll just I'll try to make this super quick, but uh, you know, there's been talk about you know, for instances like those or incidents like those, you have somebody on the ground uh, who's able to take over, and and everybody just assumes, well, you can have a hut filled with 100 pilots uh, or trailers with 100 pilots sitting in the middle of the desert somewhere. Um, aside from security issues, from a bandwidth and uh, hacking and stuff like that, um, the the real issue is that even with the military, people point at that, you know, that they have these drones flying around. The landing and takeoff for drones is always handled locally. And so, you know, how many pilots do you want to have at every single airport sitting in a trailer uh, controlling all these things uh, throughout throughout the country? And at what point are you really saving money or increasing safety? Well, and real quick on that, go Google the reliability of drones at the military level you would be amazed. People always think that the drones are as reliable as that 777 they're flying on. Drones have a significantly, and I mean significantly, lower reliability rate. And they, the military puts a lot of them in the dirt. Um, and if you look up the reasonings behind it, a lot of it is 
loss of bandwidth, loss of control, loss of signal, loss of, you just don't hear about it because it's military, but go Google it. It's very interesting. They lose a significant number. The reliability is very low. You know, I extrapolated the numbers out about five years ago. So they're a little bit out of date, but if you take the number of accidents for the Global Hawk, which is the most advanced and safest of the military uh, drones right now, um, at the time, if you extrapolated the number of crashes out, we'd have 54 crashes a day uh, in the airlines worldwide, but still, it's a lot. The other thing, too, is when we talk about uh, aviation within the military realm and defense, uh, there's an acceptable level of collateral damage that we don't want to see in civil aviation. So uh, that's part of that whole equation, too. Uh, but, uh, but guys, this has been great. Anything else before we do wrap up here? I mean, this has been terrific. Walking through the 737 MAX and being able to glean a lot of information from that accident, getting very technical at one point, but also bringing it to our level uh, as pilots and general aviation pilots and also enthusiasts. Uh, anything else you want to say before we close? I'll start with you, Justin. No, I think it's good. I, you know, I, I think we had a really good conversation. It got a little bit more um, intense there. You start talking about pilots and our duties and our jobs. And, and I think that's personal for all of us. And, uh, but at the end of the day, um, no, I think it's a great conversation to have. I really enjoyed being a part of this series and I really appreciate the opportunity. So hopefully people take away and take their own tidbits away from this and learn from it and can apply it to their aviation careers. And Justin, it's always great having you on. Uh, and obviously, we'll have you on more in the future, talk a little bit more about GA and everything else. Uh, but uh, from a GA perspective, it's always nice to for us to glean information from the airline world because a lot of those safety measures and things that we can learn, we can actually implement here on the general aviation side. And Ben, it's also been a real pleasure having you on. Any, any last words before we wrap up? Yeah, I think especially this last um uh, th this last episode that we did, it's easy to sort of think, oh, it's a, just a bunch of pilots sitting around trying to protect their job. But I, I would argue uh, that an interested party is not necessarily a biased party. Uh, I, I wouldn't personally feel comfortable getting on an airplane that's been too heavily overly engineered, uh, certainly not pilotless. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily a job protection uh, or, or a hobby protection for me, but uh, just simply based off my experience, I just know what can go wrong. And it's been great to, been, uh, been great being on here. I appreciate the uh, invite. Well, Ben, we definitely want to have you back on, talk a little bit about more about general aviation. We loved it, your experience, both from the airline side and also from the general aviation side. We also will have in the show notes down below links to where you can contact both Justin and Ben. And, uh, of course, if you do want to get in touch with them, uh, go to contact at stuckmikeavcast.com or stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com to send us your questions, your comments on the Facebook page, etc. One thing I want to challenge everybody to do is, you know, when we're done with this podcast, we did a whole series, five of them. If you haven't heard all of them, go back, listen to them. But more importantly, think about what it is that you can do personally to actually increase your safety and, are, and, and then reflect on yourself. Are you relying too much on automation? Do you not know the systems well enough? Is there something that you can do? Can you add to your training somehow to make yourself a safer pilot and therefore make, this, make the system safer? And also something that's great about it, it makes it more enjoyable for you. And I know it's a challenge. 
Well, folks, we'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.